Warning, Weird West Radio contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Take care of it as usual. Nothing to worry about. Just a boy with a bag. The head weighs less than the body. The infamous red bill. I told you to stay out of my jurisdiction. How many men have you killed, Sheriff? This is my town. Mine and McCoy's. We made the rules. Everything has a price. Hello, welcome everyone to Weird West Radio on Rain Man Digital, Rain Man Digital's exclusive Western show where we discussed all things related to the Western genre with a focus on the Weird West subgenre. And today in studio to discuss a Weird Western and a Spaghetti Western at that is David Sabal. Hello, David. Hey, how's it going, everybody? All right, so we're going to be talking about something that I never thought we'd ever get, (laughs) and that's a Spaghetti Western TV show. Yes. And that's titled That Dirty Black Bag, which is a Spaghetti Western television series created by Mauro Argani, Silvia Ebruel, and Marcelo Izzo for AMC+. I probably mispronounced those names, and I apologize. It features an ensemble cast led by Dominic Cooper, Travis Fimmel, and Aidan Gillen. The eight-part series was filmed in Italy, Spain, and it premiered March 10th, 2022. And the good news is, Dave, all things are pointing to getting a second season. Yes, I'm very excited. that I was worried, honestly, for the series because I personally like this series. I was hoping they would get a second season. And I was not very, I I felt the same way, but I wasn't very confident that we would get a second season because for the most part, this series has pretty much gone underneath the radar across the board when it comes to audiences, when it comes to critics. In fact, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, there is zero professional critic reviews. Yeah. Zero. Zero. How is that possible with a series like this? I don't know. But that's why the industry needs us, David, because we don't <laughs> neglect films and television shows like this. No. And, and possibly part of the reason why maybe it's gone under the radar isn't because it isn't interesting. I feel like it's just solely to the times that we're in today with all the different. There's too many choices for television. And yeah. this premiered and airs on AMC plus and yes. AMC plus is not one of the bigger streaming services is relatively small. The shows they do have are very high quality and I'll tell people right now, if you want to watch this after we discuss what I would suggest is go pick up AMC plus do the seven day trial. I believe that's what they offer and Binge the fuck out of this TV show. Yes. And then if you like it, support and stay around for another couple months just to make sure they can get paid. And then when they come back for a second season, resubscribe. It's well worth the dough. And I think AMC Plus is only what, like $5.99, 7 bucks. It's relatively cheap. It is. All right. So the synopsis. 
A story over eight long days describes the encounter and clash between two men, McCoy, an apparently incorruptible sheriff with a dark past, and Red Bill, a dirty bounty killer trapped in a (laughs) desire for vengeance that cannot be fulfilled. Right off the bat, I'm sorry, the character names are just spitting about spaghetti westerns. And something spaghetti westerns always do is they never call Bounty hunters, bounty hunters. Bounty hunters. They're bounty. They're bounty killers. Bounty killers. And I'm sorry, I love the casting of uh, Douglas Booth and Dominic Cooper. They did a fantastic job as these two characters. Like, I love McCoy. I don't know if like. I like all of them. Even the bad guys. Even were, the bad guys were cool. Perfect casting. That these creators, producers, and the showrunner, they fully understood the spaghetti Western without a doubt. There are a lot of directors and writers who are fans of spaghetti Westerns and they attempt to do a bit of a homage with something, whether it be a movie or parts of a TV show and they never quite get it right. You can tell yeah. they're trying to have fun with it, maybe pay some type of tribute. Maybe it's something they, they liked growing up, but nothing has been done as perfectly as this. Now, as this, yeah. the series in itself isn't perfect. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's a 120%. But when it comes to the spaghetti Western elements, it oh, is yeah. it is without a doubt perfect. Oh, yeah. I, I, I 100% agree with you in that regard because I think that's what this series shines the most is like, especially in this day and age when to me, everyone thinks a Western should be one thing. When you have a series like this in the Western genre, that basically is paying homage to the Western genre history of showing what a spaghetti Western is all about. That's what it captures. I mean, the story itself, the way it's acted, the way it's shot, it feels like an old spaghetti Western from the 1970s. 1960s, 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. Now it goes without saying But with a name for formality, I will say again that this series from AMC Plus finds its roots in spaghetti westerns. Mm -hmm. This genre was made famous by directors such as Sergio Leone and several others. But American audiences are no doubt more familiar with Leone's films, which are the Dollars Trilogy, which includes For a Few Dollars More, Fistful of Dollars, and the iconic The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And then there's another group of trilogies that a lot of people seem to forget. I should say an other group of films that I would also consider a trilogy that a lot of people tend to forget. And I call them the Once Upon a Time trilogy, which is made up of Once Upon a Time in the West, a film that some film historians have dubbed the mega Western or the Western to end all Westerns as it symbolized the ending of the Western era, or at least the end of what some people call the mythological West. Uh, The second film is a fistful of dynamite or more appropriately called once upon a time, a revolution revolution, which is a bridge between the ending of the so-called West and is a type of cynical commentary on modernity and political ideology and the rise of the American gangster in once upon a time in America. So those are the films that Leone has done that are probably the most popular films, those six films. And excluding, say, Once Upon a Time in America, most of this TV series really borrows from Leone's Spaghetti Westerns, his, let's say, the five out of the six films that I mentioned. And it's important to understand that these films, in many ways, were a deconstruction of American Western myth. And at yes. times were far more cynical and critical of the American idealized Western film that reinforced much of Americans conservative values of the time when American Westerns were really popular. The Euro Westerns did pretty much the opposite. As I was saying, they, their aim was to deconstruct. Yes. And why is this important? It's important because that dirty black bag is made in that same vein. It's not looking to reify abstract ideologies of the classic American Western films, but it looks to really focus on the ugliness 
of yeah. society. It's oh, capitalist far. endeavors and the human condition or how we as individuals are affected by that ugliness. This is why there are inclusions. And we're going to be careful how we talk about certain things. But <laughs> okay. this is why there are inclusions of cannibalism, yes. which is a metaphor for insatiable consumption mm-hmm. and cult-like loyalty to the pursuit of wealth. The filmmakers don't shy away from presenting these ideas as they are ugly and grotesque. This is an anti-Western David for all intents and purposes. This is a true spaghetti Western, which is an anti-Western in that it, in that it rejects much like the spaghetti Westerns of the sixties and seventies, the idealized vision of America's old West. Oh yeah. Because like, that's the whole point though. The one thing that you got to hammer home about spaghetti Westerns is it focuses on the ugliness of humanity. But even in the ugly, even if in the ugliest situation in humanity, there's still that one gold nugget of hope. Mm-hmm. And th- that's the thing is like all the characters seem despicable, but there's always one quality that basically says, oh, but they're still human. They're not totally a monster. They're, they're majority of them are monster, like you, a great deal, but you just find that one little shred of humanity inside of them just to actually show that, yeah, they're human too. They're, yeah. they're, they're as ugly as they can be. They're still human. It depends on who's making the spaghetti Western. I think in what we're, as we are voicing it, we are leaning more on Sergio Leone's spaghetti Westerns. And I, and the reason why we're doing that is because it's my belief that these filmmakers were also using more of Leone's style of spaghetti Westerns than anyone else's. Yeah. I think even, so. even when it comes to, I don't want to say political cause this isn't political, but the ideologies, the ideology, uh, the use of ideology. Yeah. And when looking at this film, or I should say when looking at this series from that viewpoint, this series, in my opinion, comes closer to capturing the spaghetti westerns than anyone else that has attempted within the last, say, 20 years, maybe even 30 years. Even someone, David, as brilliant and knowledgeable as, say, Quentin Tarantino. This is a true spaghetti western. This isn't a nod to a spaghetti western. Like, for example, in Kill Bill, there are tons of spaghetti western moments, but they're more nods. Uh, same thing with Once Upon a Time, uh, not Once Upon a Time, um, Inglorious Bastards. Same thing with Jenga One Chain. Same thing with Hateful Eight. I would never call those spaghetti westerns, but I would say there are nods to spaghetti westerns. Yeah, there's elements in there that basically show Tarantino's inspiration. Yeah. That's, what, that's, his, that's his inspiration. Isn't that the difference with this? When you take this series and you try to contrast it to everything else that's attempted to delve into the spaghetti Western arena, whereas they have dipped their toes, they have dipped their toes in the spaghetti Western waters. The showrunner for that dirty black bag jumped in head first. Yes. A hundred percent because this isn't, this isn't taking inspiration. This is actually working in the genre. You are making a spaghetti Western series. You are making a spaghetti Western quote, quote project. It's not a project inspired by the spaghetti Western. So you can do stuff like what Tarantino does and basically sprinkle other genres in there. This series is a straight spaghetti Western. And I think that that's what is the issue with a lot of people who watch this, if you're expecting a Western series, say like, this isn't Dr. Quinn medicine woman. (laughs) I wasn't going to pull that out. (laughs) I was, uh, but like, say for example, this isn't lonesome dove, lonesome dove. (laughs) But if you're looking for that type of Western, that is not what you're looking for. This is a straight Sergio Leone inspired Spaghetti Western, which has to focus on the ugliness of humanity. This is an anti-Western. An anti-Western. It's a, you're going to have anti-heroes in your series, no matter what. There's not going to be that 
American concept, which is the, 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 the good guy wearing the white hat. There is none in a spaghetti Western. You don't have that ideology in there because that doesn't exist. Yeah. David, since you're on a roll, just move in to your initial thoughts. I would love to hear your overall initial thoughts briefly in a nutshell. I, I was really excited for this series a hundred percent. When this first got announced, I saw the trailers. I got really excited about it. And right from episode one, I was glued to the TV. I was like, okay. I was expecting them to, you know, like do the, like what you said, this is a story inspired by spaghetti Westerns, but sure enough, this felt like I was watching a honest to God, Sergio Leone made series because like, you have all the elements of what to me makes a spaghetti Western to me, what makes a spaghetti Western isn't, you know, the, the quick draws and the, the, the cowboy elements. No spaghetti Westerns are basically simple stories that deal with the human element, good and evil, right and wrong. You know, the blurred lines between what makes us human and what makes us inhuman. And then showing the fact that basically even the most inhumane person who looks like a villain, you can still find them almost scarily character, uh, charismatic. And for some people, even, you know, like what's the word you can find them understandable or, uh, relatable. And that's, what's supposed to be scary about spaghetti Westerns is like, you know, you're rooting for the, you want the good guy to win, but in actuality, you're looking at the bad guy going, you know, I understand him. Well, we, you're right. There is, and you know, and this is me. I want people to understand that this is not us, the lasting classic American Westerns by any means. There is a beautiful aspects to those films. They're some of my favorite movies as well. But the reason why personally I've always gravitated to the spaghetti Western genre over the American Western genre when it comes to Westerns is because it's pretty much what you were just touching on about the relatability. I feel like most of us can relate to imperfect people because that's what we are. We all, whether we want to admit it or not, have done something ugly in our life, you Mm -hmm. know, whether, you know, it being rude to a loved one or countless other things that just happen in our day to day lives over the course of our existence. Whereas with the American Westerns, it's hard to relate to a, a white hat. You know, it's hard to relate to John Wayne. Yeah. We, we sure there might be moments where you can gravitate, gravitate to him much like, let's say a young person would gravitate to Superman, you know, like, Oh, he's so cool. He's the hero. He saves the day, but that's pretty much the end of, of that. You know, if you, once you admire what they've done and you give that, that feeling of heroism, I would say there isn't much relatability because of that heroism, mm-hmm. because let's just be brutally honest. None of us are heroes. Yeah. We can't relate to that. So it's, it's tough. So when we're talking about the spaghetti Western, we're not trying to malign American Westerns. We're simply trying to draw the contrast that's needed to understand uh, and bring a br- uh, greater context to this discussion. Does that make sense, Dave? No, that makes yeah. sense because like, say for example, like the, the very first element that showed me that this is a true spaghetti Western experience was the introduction of Arthur McCoy, which was played by Dominic Cooper. Automatically you were, you'd think on a Western scale, he's the guy in the white hat. He's the sheriff, right? He's the guy that basically, he's supposed to be the good guy that rides in and basically saves the day. But as you go along, they start showing that elements that no the good McCoy, is relative. Good is relative, exactly. And like McCoy, he's not evil. McCoy's but- not evil, but he's not good either. He's just a guy trying to live. Yeah. And and then when you do that in contrast with with the bounty hunter with Bill, it's same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. No one's no one's an angel in this series. So Dave, just to back up just a bit. Um, let's start at the very beginning of the very first episode, and then we'll start leaning into the rest of this discussion. One of the greatest parts about this series is how it opens. <laughs> the homage 
to one of the greatest Westerns ever made. And I will say, I would say the greatest, which is once upon a time in the West. It's not the greatest spaghetti Western. It's not the greatest American Western. It's the greatest Western of all time, in my opinion. And you have just an amazing moment where the baddie at the very beginning traps a fly in the barrel of his gun, gun. (laughs) just like in that opening scene. That's so iconic in once upon a time in the West. And you have these barrels, which they do this throughout the entire series. The barrels of guns are so massive. And that has to do with the lens choice. I know to this day, there are, you can go to chat sites where film students are begging people to share with them the information on how Leone shot these scenes. How did he make these guns so big? How did he make these faces so big? A zoom lens, bro. Zoom lens. Telephoto. 200 yeah. millimeter on someone's face. You have to back about a good 300 feet away. No, probably more than that. Probably more than that. Because we've done shots like that ourselves when we were experimenting with lens choices. This is something that Leone did all the time. He put the Western genre under, for all intents and purposes, a microscope. And that's how he made these barrels look so big. And the writers and producers for this series did the exact same thing from the very beginning. When when the bad guy traps the fly in that barrel, that barrel is so large, it looks like a cave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that's done through, as I said, with lens choice. But you got to create that shallow focus, which... Not to get overly technical here, when it comes to cinematography, all that is is a technique that incorporates a small depth of field, meaning uh, you have a very tight focus and the object that you want to focus on is the only thing in focus and everything else drops away. And that just creates this massive depth and texture. And that's the trick to 90% of the cool shots in Spaghetti Westerns. Yes. It's, it's all about lens, lenses and cinematography and spaghetti westerns because I have, to, I have to choose my words wisely when I say this. American westerns are big and gra- grandiose and vast. And that's why you get those wide, big, wide, beautiful Ford shots, right? And spaghetti westerns are more personal. It goes to like what we were saying earlier, how a spaghetti Western is more about the human condition and what it means to be human sometimes. And in order to do that, you have to make your visuals match your, your themes and it becomes more about personal, personal views. So that's why you get those really, really gorgeous shots of like close-ups and making everything bigger than it is. Because in the human mind, everything is big. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. And adding on to what you said about the, the beautiful scopes of American Westerns. Yeah. They, they have beautiful landscape shots and the cinematography lends itself more to open spaces open because spaces. it, it's insinuating, you know, this idea of the American dream of, of freedom and the endless potential to, you know, American wealth and, I guess you can even say capitalism to some degree. Easily. Whereas the spaghetti westerns utilized, I don't want to say French New Wave aspects, but essentially did because the French New mm-hmm. Wave movement is what introduced all of the unorthodox filmmaking conventions, yeah. you know, tracking shots. They took the camera and made it more of a of a I would say more of a character at a times. Character, yeah. And I know back in the old days, especially during the 1950s, 40s, 30s, you know, American cinema is like, you don't do those things. That's mm-hmm. bad filmmaking. That's what shitty filmmakers do. That's what they thought. And you flash forward now into like the, say, the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and even into now. Pretty much every film that comes out today borrows things from the French New Wave and the spaghetti Western genre. Oh, easily. Because like that, those genres and those filmmakers back then at the end of the day, they're ver- they were very famous for being experimental. Like yeah. even Leone. Oh, Leone yeah, was, there were, I remember reading about how he would take 
gambles with the camera and the cinematographer would be really uncomfortable doing the shot. So Leone would do it himself. Well, look at the, <laughs> look at the force perspective that he used a lot in various scenes various in his scenes. dollars trilogy where mm -hmm. I, I forget which dollar film it's in, but there's a scene where Clint Eastwood walks into frame and his boot is so fucking big. <laughs> and then in the background, you have this tiny water tower. Mm -hmm. That's experimentation. That's experimentation. You, you weren't really seeing things like that in American cinema, whereas Leone was able to experiment. And that's the reason why his films stood out. And to this day, they're analyzed and studied by film historians and would-be filmmakers because there are a lot of filmic conventions that I would say he either created himself or he created hybrid versions of other things that were being done in cinema markets that were willing to experiment because the American yeah. cinema was not really playing those types of games at that point. A little bit with the film noir, but also film noir was, wasn't considered... Quality cinema. Quality cinema, no. And like if you think about it, like the one scene in the very beginning, the one the one moment that sticks out in my mind that basically showed that told me that this is partly the spaghetti uh western element being shown here as the influence was the time when basically, you know, he opens the bag and then you see the head and you see the blue eye. Well, hold on. <laughs> to explain why he has a bag with a head in it <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into that for yeah, a second because, yeah we'll get into that but that but i'm just saying as a scene in itself yes that yeah. that was the scene that i'm like going bingo that's I'm, where you get it i'm glad we didn't cover this series because i was thinking we were going to cover it per episode and i'm glad we didn't because we would never get through it no, look how we spent 26 minutes already on this show. We haven't even gotten into the discussion. We would probably spend two or three hours per episode because there's just so much spaghetti Westerns isms, <laughs> isms in this series. It just makes it so great. Yes. So let's move into this officially. I want to stay away from plot details and anything that could be considered spoilers because okay. I, I, David, I want people to watch this series. I do too. I do too. I, I think that this series deserves an audience. Yeah. So I want to stay away from plot things. So we'll focus more on the abstract elements and explaining certain things and giving you context, just like, for example, we have done over the last, I say the first half of this discussion already. So overall series construction, let's talk about what they're doing here. Okay. The view of American life as isolated communities coming to terms with fast approaching modern life. That's definitely one thematic element that is used throughout the series. Times are changing and the series offers a rather naturalistic view that, that portrays uncertainties that accompany such change and how people may react to change. For example, many try to prevent that change because of the anxieties and because of the unknown. And they will dig their feet in, such as is the case with one of our main characters, Steve, who keeps the fact that he's literally living on top of a massive gold vein, yes. a secret because he doesn't want the city to change. He's rejecting wealth because he fears what money will do to the town. And here we go, David, with a common theme relating to capitalism, which we find a lot within Spaghetti Westerns. And the reason why we see a lot of this anti-capitalism in Spaghetti Westerns, and there's a lot of film historians that don't really get into this aspect because they don't want to always dig into the politics. But during the time that Spaghetti Westerns were at its height, you had a lot of socialism on the rise Yeah, in the Italian cinema with the, many of the, the liberal directors. And because of that, they viewed American capitalism very cynically, and it found its way many times into pieces of their work. And that's why I felt there was so much authenticity to this series, because not only were they doing the expected things, right, in a spaghetti western like the camera shots and the gimmicks and the cool gunplay, but even the thematic elements and the metaphors that are very common in spaghetti westerns, the, the ideologies. Um, that aren't necessarily overly political. It's more or less just a way to convey 
social commentary. Social commentary. Yeah. They, they weren't looking to start some shit with anybody. It's not like how it is today. It is an activism. It's social commentary, more or less. Yeah. And then we have our main protagonist in an allegorical struggle, which is McCoy. Yes. That's representative of anxieties of change and uncertainty as well. So, for example, McCoy has rejected his brother's greed. And I'm going to be very careful how I go about this without ruining anything. His brother, who quite literally ate his fellow partners in crime, (laughs) get this, in order to preserve his own strength while he and McCoy carry a large golden cross across the (laughs) sun-blazed desert. Now, this is a moment that is really powerful because McCoy is disgusted by his brother's behavior and gives up any potential wealth in order to escape his brother's greed. This part is interesting because McCoy's life begins to unravel after he decides years later to rob a stagecoach. So here's that ideology again. It's quite remarkable how the series writers created this ongoing metaphor. It's one of my favorite parts of the series. And it added to it with the introduction of a disturbing Uh, Would you say satanic cult? Yeah, right? Yes. No, easily. Which I would say, I would say it endorsed the idea of cannibalism, right? (laughs) Again, symbolizing the insatiable desire for consumption. Strengthening yet again the whole theme that governed much of the series. And what makes it even that much better, Dave is this was contrasted with our protagonist, Red Bill, yes, who was more or less the embodiment of existential anxiety. Red Bill was the human component, as you had mentioned, an example of the absurdities that progress sometimes does to a person, someone that attaches his meaning of life to a single act of vengeance. Yes, and becomes obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> And in and, and doing so, because of his obsession, he kind of loses a part of his humanity yeah. in doing so. And that goes to the human element. Yes. So everything's very intricately designed to fold into the next. There, And that's a lost art with modern television. Mm-hmm. Where we have a lot of episodes nowadays that don't really quite feel cohesive in the ways of thematics. Many times there'll be a governing theme per episode, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this series really brings the aspect of thematics and uses it as a governing structure of sorts to create cohesiveness across the entire season. Okay, David. So spaghetti Western gimmicks. The series was filled with a lot lot. of spaghetti Western (laughs) tropes. Specifically when it comes to weapons and gimmicks. Now, I want you to share with me your favorite spaghetti western gimmick. Oh, wow. Just one, Dave. Just one. Do you want me to share mine first to kind of give first you because I gotta think a of it. Okay. I gotta think of it. Wild Bill. Wait, not Wild Bill. Red Bill. Red Bill. Carries an extendable axe. <laughs> And I was hoping at some point in the series, we'd see how it operates because like all spaghetti Westerns, many of their weapons make no sense. Yes. Like it would never work in real life. Oh yeah. And I don't think an ax like that would have the strength to extend that way, like with a push of a button and not break when you slice someone's head off with it. (laughs) But listen, we don't watch spaghetti Western type of things for realism, for realism when it comes to the gimmicks. We know that they're going to take some liberties when it comes to weaponry, but that I loved. I love the extendable axe that he used to chop the heads off of the bounties he went after. Yeah. And David, why did he cut the heads off? Because in a very clever line, why carry bodies when you can just carry the heads? Yes. And also basically, I think he says something like the... Head weigh, uh, the head weighs less than a body yeah. or something. And the reason why that's funny is because his mentor, who taught him how to hunt bounties, had this big wagon 
that was more of a hassle than anything. Yes. Where he would stash all the bodies that he, I guess all the dead bodies of the bounties. Oh, the he went bounties. After. And there was a moment where red bills, you could see it working in his head is all I've fucked this wagon. And that's when he starts chopping heads and he just carries around a duffel bag with, with heads. heads. And you know what? That element was also one of my favorites because it reminded me of that scene in for a few dollars more where you have, mm, I know what you're talking Clint about. Eastwood character coming across and they're putting the bodies in the mm-hmm. wagon mm-hmm. and they're like, going, okay, well maybe uh, um, they're counting up all the bodies and making sure that, okay, that's that guy's dead. He's a bounty. He's a bounty. <laughs> and I'm like, going, actually, this makes more sense. Just chop off their heads. If they can identify them, that's fine. <laughs> that's why I liked it because it made me reevaluate my entire life watching Westerns. How come yes. I've never seen this is a, a damn good, clever way to collect bounties without the struggle of carrying around a bunch of bodies. It makes perfect sense. And it makes me wonder why we've never seen this before in a Western. Yeah. And if man, it, you, that, that was one element I liked. I also liked the, the, the automatically you have to go with the wrist revolver, you know, the, that operated in like a hydraulic system. Yeah, almost. The, hydrate. <laughs> the native American guy, the bad yeah, guy. Yeah. The native American bad guy. Just basically when he just, and yes, there are well, guns ex- like that. Explain it though. Explain how it operates. Well, the way it, it's, it operates, it's basically like a revolver that's attached to his wrist that allows him to basically essentially quick draw really fast. And it's interesting <laughs> because they didn't show exactly how it worked, but no. you got the idea that it was connected to a type of hydraulic system, hydraulic right? System. Yes. And it, it was almost steampunkish. Yes, where, it was. Yeah. It was kind of like, okay, how does this, uh, don't worry. It works. It's almost, I like the hydraulic system idea a lot better than other things we've seen because yeah, we've seen guns that, that will mysteriously eject from our hero's sleeves. Sleeves. You know, we saw it. But it's course, always been like a, also like a smaller gun. And it's usually like some type of wrist holster that kind of just springs it out into your the palm of your hand. This thing was an entire tro- hydraulic system that was wrapped around the guy's <laughs> arm, arm in his shirt. And in that regard, I would say that was probably more realistic than this spring clip action that yes. we've seen for so many years. And in a weird sort of way, it made that character look more mythical than, than yeah. technological. It almost every time he was on the scene during the entire he series. He was scary, right? Yeah. And he was like, every time that would happen, it almost looked very supernatural-ish, which you, you want in a, a spaghetti Western, you're, you want your characters to be bigger than life, not to be explained by a simple flick of the wrist and all of a sudden a little revolver Derringer comes out. No, this seemed like this was a apparatus that was strapped to his body and he found some way to make this contraption work with his body yeah just briefly because i had forgotten to mention this you just said a word that made me think this and you say there's almost like a supernatural element yeah to the native american bad guy i, I felt like there was illusions i don't think there is but I definitely feel like they were playing with it. There are allusions to a supernatural element throughout the series you because see it. Yeah. yeah, I don't feel like they're ever going to go down that route. And I don't think there necessarily is. However, going with the idea of the mythological and the fact that the spaghetti Western specifically is myth, it's American mythology to the max, you know, dressed in, inaccurate historical piece or historical moments that never really happened. I mean, the, the American West never happened like it was in the movies. Maybe now with, with modern films, they, they try to create films that are more conducive with actual history. But back in the old days, American Westerns and spaghetti Westerns, they gravitated to more the mythological side. And that's why the moments where they allude to this, they don't allude. They outwardly state that there's some type of satanic cult going on, that the bad guys are all a part of this cult. And because of that inclusion and the cannibalism, and then you have like a, a, is it a grimoire almost? Yes. That they use 
Well, I think one of them has like a recipe to eat people. <laughs> but yeah, that leads to the cannibalism. Yeah, I mean, there is, they're definitely playing with ideas of the supernatural. Speaking of that, another aspect has a lot to do with Catholicism that I liked. I would also say is part of the spaghetti Western tropes and spaghetti Western gimmicks, things that we see a lot, is the Catholic iconography as opposed to Protestant iconography. And people may not even realize this, but American Westerns relied heavily on Protestant symbolism, which of course, yeah. and the Italian spaghetti Westerns focused more on Catholic symbolism. Catholic symbolism. And that's something that I'm glad these people understood, these writers, because if they chose just generic, let's say Judeo-Christian symbolism, and didn't distinguish between Protestant and Catholic, I would say, well, that's one point against you guys because the Spaghetti Westerns always gravitated to Catholicism in some way. I mean, that's why we had the bells. That's why we had the choirs. Yes. You know, in fact, in this scene, the very opening five minutes, you have the bad guy. In an altar. <laughs> yeah. Altar. He's in a chapel where he just murdered a bunch of people and there's a woman with her hand open with what? The rosary beads and the cross. Yes. And the camera just lingers on that shot. It was fantastic. That, that was actually really cool. That's a cool opening. Another spaghetti Western trope. We already mentioned it briefly in a different context, but it was the dragging of the cross, which I would say is essentially a tribute of sorts to Django. Dragging the coffin. <laughs> in the coffin, yeah. Because Dominic Cooper, when he's dragging that golden cross and you have that long shot where you have the character in the center of the frame, you have a massive background that's almost out of focus because it's just so distant. They're trying to create this, this idea that he's in the middle of nowhere. It looked just like the scene taken from Django when he's first walking into the out skirts of the main city where the movie takes place. Yeah. So I like that as well. And listen, there are probably 75 moments that I can point to in this eight part series, but we don't have time for that type of oogling and eyeing as spaghetti Western fans, because we're trying to keep this discussion down to 45 to <laughs> 50 minutes. Max. Oh, and that's a challenge in itself. <laughs> yeah. David, we need to talk a bit about the black the dirty black bag cast because when it comes to spaghetti Westerns, casting is key. Yeah. Douglas Booth, who played red bill, perfect casting choice. He truly captured the essence of, I would say he's the Eastwood character. Yeah. He's the stranger. Yeah. He's, he's definitely, the yes. He's the silent type. He's also the one that has the good heart, but he's also not really a bad guy or a good guy. Dominic Cooper probably doesn't have his character, McCoy. He embodies the, <laughs> I would say he's the angel eyes character. That's what I was going to say. He's more of angel eyes. He's not evil. He's not bad, but he has his own agenda. That's the thing. He is, I would almost say, and this goes into like a big debate on if, the character of Angel Eyes is even evil in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It really comes down to he has his own agenda where it's, it's, it's his own survival. If you don't do what he says, you're not doing what he says. Essentially, you're the bad guy in his world. Yeah. So that's why I, I cracked up when that one scene when Dominic Cooper just... McCoy becomes Angel Eyes to me when he shoots the guy in the back toward the end of the show. And he basically is like, you should have done what I told you. <laughs> well, he doesn't have loyalty to anyone really. Zero. And yeah, and that is Angel Eyes. Yeah. That, to me, that's what encapsulates that character. And what separates him from, say, like a character like Tuco, who's more... I don't think we have that character, that Tuco-like character. They say Red Bill is almost the embodiment of both the the Eastwood and the Eli Wallach character from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because the, I think the good heart comes from Eli Wallach character, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because I always felt like they were misnamed because the good is probably him. 
that you can make you can make that argument. You I know that, that just created tons of angry people out yes, there, especially like spaghetti western fans who love those three characters. And it's and you can ta- make the argument that yeah, Tuco is the good of the trio. He's also the star of the movie. Yes, let's, he is. let's be real. He, He's he the is. entire motivation and driving force of the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's the narrative influence. I yeah. mean, you follow the story from beginning to end, and it's the story of Tuco. And I would say that for the most part, 80% of the series, that's what Red Bill is. I would say the other 20, 30% is possibly McCoy. McCoy. But yeah. most things revolve, the narrative revolves around Red Bill and, the, and his actions. Yeah. And there was a moment, and this isn't a spoiler. I think if you're, if you know what to look for in Spaghetti Westerns, you're probably going to figure this out. But despite the opposing agendas between Red Bill and McCoy, in classic Leone fashion, the two <laughs> opposing sides yes. have to team up. They have to team up in the, in I toward the end. I fucking love it. It's, <laughs> it's definitely a trope in, in Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. And it's something that I always always love in his westerns it's one of my favorite scenes in the good the bad and the ugly one of my favorite western scenes of all time is in the good the bad and the ugly when eastwood is going after angel eyes for the first time i i believe it's the first time when they're walking down the street and the street's being blown up by the war yes and he like wallach is walking down the street with him eastwood is hiding behind some you know torn down building and he misses what are you gonna die alone <laughs> and then he comes out and walks with him one of the greatest moments oh in, it is in cinematic history it's one of my favorite moments because it really solidified the relationship between those two characters that they're together in this no matter what even though that they actually were opposing sides throughout the entire beginning of the movie they come together at this one moment and because he's angel eyes became the, the shared goal. And that's what the lesser of two evils, right? I'm glad you brought the ending because that was like a Leone moment using the flashback. I mean, come on. He used the flashback. That's right. Yeah. He used the flashback of red bills to actually connect him to McCoy, which I thought was genius because I'm like, you bring up the good, the bad, and the ugly. That whole element with the flashback and tying the characters together absolutely reminded me of for a few dollars more mm-hmm. with the freaking, with the freaking pocket watch. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you have the pocket watch. Oh, when the chimes end and you have that mystery too, you have that mystery element where you're not quite sure. For example, McCoy, I would say is the mysterious character. You're not quite sure of his past, even though we've seen the flashbacks and we understand what he's been through and why he's separated from his brother. Yes. But you're still not quite sure what his motives are. And that's the mystery element. And that's why that relationship between Red Bill and McCoy works so well, because they keep McCoy's agenda or at least his motivations slightly hidden. Yes. You know, purposely. But when you get to the very end and then you see the scars and you, and also the one thing I love about spaghetti Westerns, they use symbolism to tie their characters together. Like they don't openly say it in dialogue or anything. It's always done symbolically through visuals. The use of McCoy scars on his back to match the scars of Red Bill's mother's back, I thought was genius because it suddenly Oh, okay. This whole time McCoy is not this guy to be trusted, but wait a minute. He shares the same scars as Red Bill's mother, who we're supposed to find sympathetic. So we're supposed to find sympathy for, for McCoy then. Right. (laughs) And when you leave it at that, that is, that is a trope of true spaghetti Westerns. When you try to make the audience really guess who are you rooting for in this movie? In, in this particular, who are you rooting for in this series? Are you rooting for Red Bill, who seems, just like we said, he is the go-to, he's the Clint Eastwood stranger. You can make him like into the Tuco type of character, but then you got McCoy. And yeah, his, his, his choices throughout the beginning of the episode are very questionable. But then when you put it all together, you go, well, maybe this guy's not white, you know, it's not cut black and white with that character. We're supposed to find it never is black and white with spaghetti Western. It never is. Yeah. So like, it, I thought that that was a brilliant way to begin the series. 
You know who I was rooting for, Dave? You'll never guess. Simone, the big boobed prostitute. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> she's my type of gal. Of course, of course. You got, you know, she's broken a bit. She has some scars in her face. It's okay. <laughs> it's I'll, okay. I'll still love you. <laughs> We can, we can, we can look over that. We can look over that. <laughs> but even the prostitutes were well cast. They all had a point, which I know we were in a different time period. I don't really want to malign filmmakers because the time period was very different. We had more masculine heroes. The focus was more on the male lead. But what Spaghetti Westerns did even though they didn't give huge parts all the time to female characters, when they did, those characters were, were way more intriguing and interesting than anything the American cinema was doing with female characters. By, oh, yeah. far. by far. Look at how complicated the female characters is in <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, easily. Look how complicated the female characters are in this series. In this series. Both Eve, who's the madam, and Simone both highly complicated characters and they, the writers find purpose and intent for both. And they're, they're not treated like arm candy. There there's actual characters to, to them. That's why I love also what I have over spaghetti Westerns and American Westerns. It doesn't matter about the gender. The women are just as badass as the guys. I want to see a non-binary cowboy. I think it'd be kind of cool. Cowboy. It'll be called they, them. They, them. I'm a gunslinger. Look out. They'll never know who to shoot because the bad guy will be like, shoot them. His henchmen are like, who? You keep saying them. <laughs> that's stupid. That's a dumb joke. That's going to be cut. <laughs> that's going to be cut. <laughs> okay, Dave. So the production behind this film in December 2019, Media One announced they had come on board to distribute that dirty black bag, which had been in various stages of development for several years. And I can, I can attest to that. Clint, back when he was doing the show with me, him mm -hmm. and I both discussed this project when it was announced. I want to say we first heard about this in 2015 is when I first heard about this. The fact that a bunch of Filmmakers from Italy were getting together to make a true spaghetti Western television series. At one point, there was a rumor that somebody belonging to Leone's estate, I want to say, was also getting involved. I think that idea died almost immediately and it became something separate. I could be getting my stories crossed, um, so don't quote me on that. However, I do remember hearing about this and it being in the works for a very long time to the point where I just gave up on it. I quit following it. I was like, well, this is never going to happen. And sure enough, it did. In June 2021, Braun Studios and Paul Lamar announced the stars of the series would be Dominic Cooper and Douglas Booth with an ensemble cast. And once that happened, it then uh, it started st steamrolling through. And that's how AMC got involved. In November 2021, AMC Plus announced that it had acquired that dirty black bag. So it's not even a series produced by AMC. Yes. It's just simply distributed by AMC. Of the, their streaming service, the streaming AMC service. Plus. Yes. Yeah. And apparently there's three seasons planned. I'm I, hoping. I hope there'll be more. I hope. I, I'm hoping. I'm never happy. I want more than three, but at least we know that there are specifically, if you look at the eight episodes and, and how they worked, you could definitely see how there are, there is a lot more stories to tell. Oh, easily. not that it, it doesn't end in what I'd say. No, it does end with a cliffhanger. It doesn't ends it? with a cliffhanger. Yeah, that's why, yeah. that's why I was like, I was on pins and needles hoping that they get a season two because leaving it on a cliffhanger is cool. The, the fact, the way that the, the series ends and you're left there with so many questions you want to see where this is going. And I was really worried just because it wasn't getting much fanfare and it wasn't getting a lot of, a lot of uh, support. Fortunately, because this is on a paid streaming service, the production is relatively a low budget and AMC 
is not really putting much money into this. Whatever it costs them to distribute. But most of the money is being fronted by the actual production company that is responsible for putting together this entire TV series. So as long as they can find the financing and they are doing the legwork, I can't imagine AMC Plus shrugging and saying, yeah, fuck this series. We don't want it. Anymore. We don't want it anymore. <laughs> now, the overall reception, as we had said at the top of the show, it's been for the most part, it's been ignored by traditional, let's say traditional critics. And when I say traditional, I mean the ones who are getting paid to critique films. Yeah. Now the audience score, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, the average is 76%, mm-hmm. which is not bad. Not bad. And but- the IMDB score is seven out of 10 which is pretty much on par 7.6 out of 10, which is pretty much the same as the Rotten Tomatoes score on that note, David, I would give this series. I'm going to give it two scores, Dave. I never do this, (laughs) but you know what? I'm going to be a fanboy here. Okay. For once in my life, I'm allowed to be okay. A professional (laughs) score. My professional professional critic score score is 85%. It's, It's a solid series. My spaghetti Western score, fanboy score, is 98%. Because it may not be a perfect series, but it is a damn near perfect spaghetti Western. Yeah. All right, go go for it, Dave. What's your thoughts and score? I actually, the funny part was, I was actually torn like you. Professional score or the fanboy score. And with this series, I think it deserves my fanboyism. And I'm giving it a 95 it it, it, capture, it captures. I can't, I can't shit on that. It captures everything that I want as a spaghetti western fan. And the thing that is frustrating to me is seeing people say, "Well, I know westerns, and I'm a big fan of westerns and dramas, and this makes no sense to me." And I'm like, going, "Why doesn't it make sense?" And when they say the elements that don't make sense to them, I'm like, going, "You've never seen a, sp- a true, honest to God spaghetti western, have you?" It, it, this is ugly. This is mean spirited. This is grotesque. It doesn't make but sense. But it's not exploitive. It's all designed to fit within the typical themes and metaphors that 1960s and early 70s spaghetti western directors and writers utilized in their films. The good ones. Of course, I'm not going to blow all spaghetti westerns because there are some directors who are like, what's a theme? (laughs) What's a metaphor? (laughs) I'm not saying they're all brilliant out there. Let's let's be real. But the ones who are brilliant are fucking brilliant. Brilliant. Exactly. And that's why my my professional score actually was higher than yours because I actually legitimately think I can make the argument this is a 89. I don't disagree with you. I think you could make that argument. My fanboy, which is my true score, my what I'm putting out there is a 95 because as a fan, if you love spaghetti westerns and you love those like the tales of Sabata, Django, all those old spaghetti westerns that are just high concept, this is this is what we've been waiting for. And it amazes me that as Western fans, we're not clamoring more for this. I mean, this was a fun ride or from a series that flew under the radar. Yeah. This series really is a spaghetti Western. I never thought we would actually get a modern, a truly modern take on a spaghetti Western. And this is it. How can you hate this if you're a spaghetti Western fan? I I would find it very hard to take any spaghetti Western fan seriously if they said this is garbage. Yeah. I mean, this is in the vein of Sergio Leone, Sergio Corbucci. Frank Kramer, to name the my favorite three Spaghetti Western directors. Mm-hmm. All right, Dave. Well, on this note, we do need to end today's discussion. If people out there want to get more of us talking about Spaghetti Westerns, we do offer a Spaghetti Western show that's available exclusively on our network's Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash Digital and pledge a minimum of $4 a month, you'll gain access to an entire library of shows uh, that are put under the title Spaghetti Western Corner, 
where we discuss in depth various spaghetti westerns and we typically try to put out a new discussion every month. We've been behind for the past, I don't know, year or so doing it every month because of obvious reasons, but we are getting back on track doing it every single month. But even so, if you were to sign up, I believe you'll have access to almost 40 hours of spaghetti western discussions already put at, put out there in our archive. So Head over to patreon.com slash Rayman Digital and pledge. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. Just search Weird West Radio. Thank you, David. Thank you. Or said he be taken from such prison to a suitable and convenient place of execution within said county and there be hanged by the neck till he be dead, dead, dead. Now, do you have anything to say, young man? Yes, Your Honor, I do. You can go to hell, hell, hell.